Hey friends, my name is Christine Chapel, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, I chat with Vanitha Reisner about her book, Walking Through Fire, a memoir of loss and redemption. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Vanitha Reisner is passionate about helping others find hope and joy in the midst of suffering. Not only is she the author of the book we're discussing today, but she's also written The Scars That Have Shaped Me, How God Meets Us in Our Suffering. Vanitha holds degrees from the University of Virginia and Stanford University and is a regular contributor at Desiring God. She and her husband, Joel, live in Raleigh, North Carolina, and have four daughters between them. Hey there, Vanitha. Thank you so much for joining us for the show today. I'm so excited to talk with you. Oh, thank you. I am so excited to be here, Christine. Today, I have based our conversation on hope and help for layered losses on what I read about your story in your book called Walking Through Fire, a memoir of loss and redemption. Before we get started on talking about some of the topics and the struggles that you write about in this particular book, I wonder if you could share why writing about suffering and loss has become so important to you. It's a great question, Christine. It's so funny because nobody ever starts off thinking they want to write about suffering. I mean, I want to write about happy things, but I have found that I had so many questions about suffering and I felt a lot of Christians just sort of gloss over the pain of suffering and they go straight to the, you know, just trust God, it's going to be all good. And I just felt like such a bad Christian when I couldn't do that. And I felt that maybe I was missing something. And then, you know, when you dive deeper into people's conversations, everybody has these questions, but they're afraid to voice them. And so that's why I feel called to write about it because I want to be honest about what it feels like. And I think so often in the Christian life, we feel like we're letting God down by saying we're super depressed or we're questioning our faith. And yet I think that's what makes people's faith stronger. And so that's why I'm pretty committed to writing about it. And I don't want to assume that our listeners are even familiar with you. I know a lot of people are because you are so active in your writing ministry. I guess for those who are not familiar with your story, I wonder if you could just give us like a five-minute snapshot or overview of your own personal journey through layered losses. Yeah. So I'll go real fast, hopefully. Um, But I was <laughs> born in India. And when I was three months old, I got polio. And the doctors had no idea what it was because the polio vaccine had been developed years before, which is why they didn't know what it was because none of the doctors had ever seen it. But in India, often they give the polio vaccine at six months and I was three months old. So went there, um, was given ty- um, the medicine for typhoid. I was given cortisone. So within a day or two, I was completely paralyzed. And then the doctors realized like, wow, she didn't have typhoid, which is what we thought she had polio. So I was a quadriplegic, basically, and the doctors told my parents to leave India, which we did. And I grew up just angry at God. So I had my first surgery in England when I was two. And by the time I was 13, I had had 21 operations, spent most of my childhood in and out of the hospital. So I lived in a hospital, Shriners Hospital, for free, that was free. 
and lived on a ward. And so my life and my view of God and people was very skewed. Most of my life I was from watching TV. There's a TV mounted right opposite my bed in our ward. And that kind of put a disconnect between me and other people. I remember thinking, this is real life. These people are living life. And I live this sort of half-life watching it. My parents were believers, are believers, but I just couldn't believe in God. I thought their life was easy. It's easy for them to believe in God, but I didn't believe in God at all. Um, and so then when I was in the hospital, that was sort of where I was, was I don't believe in God. But when we were home, I am a pleaser. So my parents thought I totally believed in God because I said all the right stuff. I was in Sunday school. I knew all the answers. But inside, I was really angry. And if I thought God existed, um, he wasn't good. And then when I was um, in high school, I got involved in FCA. And I say Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Um, I wasn't a Christian or an athlete, but I was there to fellowship with the athletes. So that worked out just fine. <laughs> and then um, one day, a friend of mine and I would sit in the back and talk about guys. We didn't care about God. But then one day, she came home and said, God is real. And I remember thinking, oh, no. Um, she's going to want to talk about God. And she did. And so I just was so frustrated. One night I just said to the Lord, if you're real, show me. And then I, the next day I got up and I just asked God a lot more questions. Like, why did this happen? Why would you let this happen? And I opened the Bible, really not believing there was a God. So really didn't believe that there would be an answer. But I had a Bible from when I was confirmed, even though I didn't know the Lord. And I flipped open to lots of things, but ended up flipping open to John 9, where Jesus is talking to the disciples. And the disciples say to Jesus, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Sorry, they came up. They came up to somebody who was blind. And Jesus says, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God would be displayed in his life. And that was the moment for me where life changed because I had been asking this why question, what had I done? Why would you do this? And God's answer wasn't a, what have you done? But what is the purpose? And that reframed my whole past for me of God is going to use this. And I sensed that God was going to use my life. So that was my first kind of sense that God was going to do something with my suffering. But at the same time, I thought I've had all my suffering. So I was pretty sure suffering was over for me. I remember saying to people or thinking it at least, like, I feel bad for the people who haven't suffered yet because my suffering is over. And that was sort of my theology is you trust God and you say the right stuff and you're really faithful and life is going to be good. And life was so good for 10 years. Like everything I wanted, I got every college, every grad school, met and married a classmate. Life was great. And then life started to fall apart. And I had an infant son who had a heart issue. We figured out um, before he was born, but he had surgery at birth. And yet, um, and we thought, wow, everything is great. But he died at two months old because a doctor made a mistake with his medicine. And that really rocked my faith because I thought, if you're faithful, you're really going to have a good life. And so that just didn't make sense to me. And then six years after that, I was diagnosed with post-polio syndrome, which is a disease that I didn't even know what it was. But basically, it is for people who had polio, often they are a quad, they're not often a quadriplegic. I was a quadriplegic, but some people just have, they can't use their arm or their leg, but then 
after lots of surgeries and after lots of exercise, they can do things. So I was able to walk from being a quadriplegic and lived a, actually a fairly normal life. But when I was diagnosed, they said, your body's going backwards and all the gains that you made, they're going to start unwinding. And eventually you're going to be a quadriplegic again. So that was like, wow, I worked my whole life to be this creative person. I love art. I was a painter. I thought about going to art school. I love to cook. I scrapbooked kind of compulsively, I might say. Um, so I was just really into creating beauty. And they said, you need to stop that. So that was another like, wow, who am I? Like I was the person who was, I was in charge of BBS crafts. I brought meals. And so I became this different person. And so that was a, a different loss. And then six years after that, my husband came home and told me he was leaving for someone else. And I raised two adolescent daughters as a single parent with my body going backwards. And so all those things, each one of them represented an incredibly hard loss. And it, each one of them really, I asked God why. I had a lot of questions. So a lot of people say, oh, don't ask God. You know, if you really trust God, you just trust him. And that may be true for some of these really spiritual people. And, and so I'm not questioning that they do that. But for me, really trusting God meant really asking the hard questions and maybe sometimes not even sure what I thought, but not walking away. That was what trusting God looked like to me, feeling lost and empty at times. Um, but through all of that suffering, God has met me in these incredible ways. And so that's why I speak and write about it because after each loss, each time I was like, God, really? Like every single time I say, God, really? Did, did you need to do this? But yet God answers me in these amazing ways. And so uh, I'm grateful for my suffering. I did not enjoy going through it. So it's not like I want to go through any of those things again. And yet I'm grateful as I see what God has taught me and how he taught me to trust him through those things. I wonder, Vanita, if as you think about your story and you look back over those different losses that you experienced, is there a particular moment or a season in your journey that stands out to you as darker than the others? And then if so, can you share some of some of the questions and fears or doubts you were wrestling at that time? Well, I'd love to share two, I know, because um, one was after Paul died. And I mentioned, I really thought my life was going to be good. And so this was sort of like, do I even know this guy? Because I had said to people at Paul's, um, when, when I found out about Paul's problem, you know, God never makes a mistake. And I really thought that Paul would, would lead a life that was honoring to God and people would really see his trust in God because he had a heart problem. And so when Paul died, at first I said the right stuff, honestly. I spoke at his funeral and said, God never makes a mistake. But often we feel this strength in the moment. And then weeks later, days later, we want to pull every one of those words back because we don't sense God's presence the way we did. And life just feels heavy and dark. And I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't care if I lived or died. I just felt so sad and just like, how can I trust you, God? And yet it was really calling out to God in the car, just saying, God, help me. That's all I said, because I had, I hadn't walked away from God, but I leaned away. And I say that because I didn't want to look at God. I didn't want to read the Bible. I didn't really want to engage with God, but I hadn't lost my faith in that. I didn't want to like not have anything to do with him ever. 
but I just didn't feel like he was safe or that I could talk to him or trust him. And in that moment in the car, God drew so near. And it's one of those moments I can't really explain well, but the presence of God filled my car. And I felt that God was with me in a way that didn't erase the pain, but it helped me see how you can have joy even in the midst of sorrow. Like Paul had still just died months before, but yet there was this reality that seemed bigger. And it felt like, wow, this is what heaven is going to be like. That was what I sensed from God. Like, you won't see this. You're still grieving and you don't need to stop grieving, but there is something bigger happening here. And so that was pretty amazing for me in terms of my life. But then when my ex-husband left, that was really painful. And just all the doubts, the doubts about myself. So the doubts about the goodness of God sort of were huge when Paul died. But when Dave left, it was like, this is personal. This is about me. This isn't some act that is so far removed from me. And so that was really, really hard. Just, I don't know, learning to trust God through that and process it live. Like I was teaching Bible study. Actually, I was teaching Bible study through both of those losses, but I was homeschooling two daughters and just, they were really angry and just um, being willing to ask the questions and let them hang in the air. And, and I remember screaming into the dark at night, so many nights, God, why do you hate and, and really thought for a while, God hated me. And yet God continued to draw me. Well, thank you for sharing. I know it's difficult sometimes, at least for me, to revisit those really dark and painful moments. I was really thankful in the way that your writing continued to weave in the importance of Christian community, the friends, even the counselors that you turn to for support, for care, for wisdom in these times. But you also share a lot about what comments were helpful to you in the moment and then perhaps what comments were well-intended, but not necessarily helpful and sometimes even hurtful. And so I think it is important to hear if you wouldn't mind sharing what some of those helpful comments were and unhelpful comments were just so that, you know, we can connect and maybe try to steward our own words well as counselors and people helpers and friends? So I would say the things that were really helpful were people who just were willing to listen, like just asking super simple questions like, how, what does this feel like for you? Or, you know, what are you struggling with right now with this? Um, or just coming over. I mean, I remember after Paul died, just having people there, like the day after he died, just having people in our house, just being willing to be there and not necessarily ask a lot of questions or do anything, but just be there. And I think that's one of the most important things is just showing up and being, being available and being willing to listen. I think the hardest thing, and I think it's really hard for believers, was when people wanted to put theology on top of it and, and sort of a Band-Aid. And like at Paul's funeral, I remember somebody coming up to me saying, well, you know this, but Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. So this is God's will for, for Paul's life is, you know, and God is going to use this. And, you know, I believe that, but to hear it at a funeral feels so trite. Like I, I didn't even know what to say. And I think we often want to sort of wrap it up in a bow for people. We feel like we need to be, have the answers. And I know I feel that way now, even when people come to me with loss and just like the counselors here who are listening, like 
you feel like you have to have something that's going to make a difference in people's lives. And so you're sort of searching as you're talking to them, like, do I have a verse? Do I have an example? Do I have something that is going to change the way they feel? And so to me, for the longest time, success is if somebody comes in with a certain countenance to have coffee and they leave feeling better, that is success. And that may be, but a lot of times then I feel like I push too hard and I try too hard and I try to explain the ways of God and they're a mystery. And so when people would say, well, I'm sure this happened for this, or have you thought about this verse? It felt like judgment. And so being on the other side, it's not that I don't love scripture, but I appreciated it when people would share it in the context of, hey, when I was going through something hard, this verse really ministered to me. And also sharing their own questions and their own weakness was really helpful to me. And so I think people's vulnerability and sharing from a place of authenticity feels better than, hey, you know, just know in two years, this is going to feel different and, and read this scripture and meditate on this. That just felt hard. I also wanted to talk, I think we've mentioned it a few different times in this conversation, but I wanted to really focus in on at least one question on this, because in the book, you explain that you felt the need to push your pain down and only focus on good things when you talked to God. Can you talk a little more about that and share how biblical lament transforms the way you began to engage God in your losses? So I don't know why I had never heard of lament in my years in the church. And so it just seemed like like just from what we sing in church, it's always like, hey, just trust God anyway. And even the songs that talk about struggle, they just end in such a high note that it felt like you have to move through that quickly. Like if you you share your grief, you need to turn that around all in a soundbite. And so I just thought that's what faith looked like. And so I sort of, there was this huge disconnect between me and God sometimes because I could sing those things and I could say them and I could journal them. But inside there was a whole nother real running of this is hard, but I, I can't share that with anybody, including God, because, you know, what, what would I say? And so when you start writing raw words to God, you realize there's a lot of them. But if you don't start, you don't even know how to, how to, what to say. And I, I feel like just reading the Psalms and really reading them and saying, okay, let me sit in the first, like I'm reading Psalm 13 today. And um, let me sit in the first two verses where he's like, how long, oh Lord, will you forget me forever? And so just really being able to sit there and not feel like all in the same moment, you need to move to verse six, which is, you know, I will trust you. And I think just knowing that God wants to hear that was huge for me. And I think, I think starting to be authentic with God really changed my relationship with him because I think it's easy to come to Christ and then just have this like head knowledge relationship with God. Like Jesus died for my sins. I know all the right answers, but there's not this personal relationship with God. And I think if we can't be honest with God, it's hard to get there in terms of a personal relationship, in terms of really trusting God with our sorrows and our joys. And so I think lament really brought me to this understanding that God wants to hear not just these sanitized, happy words, but he wants to hear the depths of my heart so that those words are real happy. They're real joy. There's a real turn versus just sort of the steady, even flow of words that are disconnected from me. 
I also appreciate that in the book you highlight a kind of loss that we might not think about when it comes to suffering. And you alluded to it in the question where you were sharing your story, but it was the sense of a loss of identity. And you write that this was something you had to process and even grieve after you received your post-polio diagnosis. Um, for example, like you were talking about, you look back at how you used to serve in a local church and you wrote, quote, I could never be that person again. I couldn't be that person. So how did you process that kind of change or loss at the time? It was really, really hard just to process that I'm a different person. Like, And it's still hard in some ways, honestly, because I'm at a different church and nobody even knows that I ever made meals for people or that I ever did VBS. Like I'm the I'm sure they don't see me as I'm the disabled person, but maybe they do. Um, but I don't do any of those things. And so it it really was this shift in identity from what I do to who I am. And it was a good thing in a lot of ways, because when your identity is in what you do, then you always have to keep doing the next thing. Like if you don't bring a great meal or if you do, if you do really bad BBS crafts, then you feel like, oh, I, I didn't measure up to what people expected of me. But at the same time, it feels like there's a huge part of me that other people don't even know. And so that, that is a loss sometimes. Like people, I, I used to paint and I have paintings in my house and we had somebody over last night and they were like, oh, wow, these are neat paintings and realizing I'm not going to paint again. And so it is one of those things that you have to give to God on a moment by moment basis. And that's been a good thing for me to learn. It's not like some losses are just, over and once and done, and you just process them and they never come up. And I think layered losses, um, particularly, there's just all these different pieces of it. And for me, like post polio itself is a layered loss. There's the, hey, I can't do things. I can't, you know, one day I'm going to be in a wheelchair. I use a wheelchair probably more than I walk now. I don't cook anymore. We, you know, life is very different. So there's the things that affect me. And then there's the ways I feel like I'm, I'm perceived by other people. And even just like, I loved to do Christmas a certain way and it, it doesn't look the same way. I don't wrap all these presents. I don't do all those things. And so it has been each time something that I have to give to God. And so it does draw me to God because I still cry a lot at Christmas and I just think, oh, this isn't what I wanted it to be. And then just giving it to God saying, but you knew this, you knew that you could take this. And so help me, help me see that you were in this and you're sufficient. And so that exchange for all of these unfulfilled longings, I call them, you know, whether it be, you know, singleness or infertility. I mean, there's just so many things that there's the loss of, of every day realizing like, wow, this is another day where I have to live with this loss and, and grieving it and giving it to God. That's so good. Thank you for helping us think about that a little bit more. There was another quote that stood out to me and one that I thought was particularly relevant for our conversation today. You write, quote, was it possible to accept continual loss, to become used to the terror of constant decline? Or maybe the only possible reaction was to hate every single minute of it and rage against what was coming. And I thought that was very honest. I wonder if you could share, you know, how would you handle answering or at least addressing, I know we don't have complete answers, but addressing these kinds of questions today where you are at in your journey? One of um, John Piper's quotes actually has been super helpful for me, and it is, occasionally weep deeply over the life you hoped would be 
grieve the loss, feel the pain, then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life he's given you. I love that because we are going to continue to grieve it. It's not a grieve once and then move on. It's occasionally grieve deeply. So when those things come up, when, you know, with chronic illness and you can't go do the things you want to do, there's a place to grieve that. But then there is a place to say, okay, God has given me a different life, a different life than I ever wanted or planned, but God knows this is a good life for me and sort of embracing that. And that's the both and like, I grieve the things I can't do, but honestly, I probably wouldn't be a writer. I wouldn't talk about suffering. I was an artist. I expressed creativity through my hands. And so God gave me another way to do that. And so I think it is a continual both and grieve it and then embrace God's goodness in it and, and ask God, like, show me something about yourself. And sometimes it's not that you have another thing that replaces that, but it's that God draws you closer in the midst of that. Sometimes I think it is out of our emptiness that God can fill us the most. And so if we're already full, God is like a piece of icing on the cake. But if you have nothing, God is the cake and the icing and everything. And so you enjoy it. You realize how rich God is. I know that may sound trite to people. Like it's easy for people who have something to say that to people who feel like they have nothing. And yet I have found the more I've leaned into God and and really through the Bible, just said, God, show me who you are. The more I've had a sense of who he is. And that that does change how I feel about my suffering because I realize one day I'm going to be in heaven. And the only thing I'm going to have is to enjoy God. I mean, you know, we might be able to, you know, Randy Alcorn talks about what heaven is going to be like, but the biggest part is enjoying God. And I actually can do that even more in myself. Later on in your journey through suffering and loss, you talk about days where you, quote, didn't feel spiritual or, quote, excited or passionate about spending time with God. It, it kind of resonated with me as like a, a kind of dryness that I think we all can relate to where we just wake up and we're like, okay, I feel like this is more of a duty than a delight. But you say that you followed through with the habit of personal devotions, even on those days, because you believe that in doing so, you were, quote, inviting God to change me. So what did you mean by that statement? And what did those dry devotional times sometimes look like for you, practically speaking? Well, I have a Bible reading plan, and I think that's really important for people, um, just because I remember years when I didn't. And I would sort of like drift through, like, what am I supposed to read today? And then, you know, if I was looking at a devotional, I'd look up the scripture on the bottom, but there was not a cohesiveness to it. And I found if I didn't know what I was going to do, I was much less likely to actually do anything, especially on days when I felt really down. Whereas if I had something, and it doesn't have to be like this huge chunk of scripture, but just even reading through a gospel and knowing where you're going to stop and or, or where you're going to pick up. Um, is huge and important. And so that was one thing is um, I had a plan. And so I had a place that I was going to read. And one thing that has really changed me over the years from having quiet time really being a have to and an obligation is the simple thing of expectation. Like I pretty much say now, God, I need you to speak to me and I need you to show me something. And God does. And I, realized that so many times I didn't come to my time with God with any kind of expectation. It was more like I needed to figure something out or I needed to just get this done because that's what Christians do. Versus saying, 
this is a time when God is going to speak to me through scripture. And we know God speaks through every page of scripture. So God can speak through Leviticus just as much as he could speak through um, the gospel of John, you know, because they are, there's life in that. And so that one little thing changed me. I remember when I was really desperate, I would pray um, some things from Psalm 119, which Psalm 119 used to be one of my least favorite Psalms. It is so long. It's 176 verses about the Bible. And I remember thinking, and I really hate to admit this, but I was teaching it in Bible study and inside I'm thinking, this is so long. Like we, David or the Psalmist, I'm not sure if David actually wrote it, we don't know, um, was just going on about like a lot of these sentences seem the same. And so I thought, well, I just got to get through this. And yet when I was struggling, I was actually in Psalm 119 when my, my ex-husband left. And somehow those words became life. And I remember um, Psalm 19.25 is, my soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. And I remember praying that. And I remember scripture coming alive. And so that became my prayer. So many days is, my soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. And then I would see just the most ordinary phrases that I would have passed by that God, the spirit would breathe life into them and there would be something fresh for me. And that became this excitement for me. Like, okay, even if I get up and I feel like, wow, I don't even want to go to do this, but just the act of trusting God and saying, God, show me, I bring nothing here. You bring everything. Can you, can you show me yourself? And I don't want to say like every single quiet time I ever have is this like mountaintop experience because that would be completely untrue. But at the same time, there have been so, so much richness in my quiet times that I don't look at them the same way. And um, the other thing that I read um, a couple of years ago in um, the book Liturgy of the Ordinary is the author, um, uh, Tish Harrison Warren, talks about the fact that we eat every day. And everything we eat nourishes us. But sometimes we have these amazing meals that we can remember and talk to people about. Like, I'm a foodie. I can tell you all my favorite meals. But the leftover peanut butter and jelly I ate was just as important for me as the, like, lobster. And so sometimes I think we forget that this is God's word. It feeds us whether or not we remember and have this mountaintop experience with it. So those are things that remind me I need this because God is using it in my life. That's so good. Thank you for sharing that verse too about my soul clinging to the dust, revive me according to your word. Cause I think that that's uh, just a beautiful, honest verse that I think resonates with a lot of people, including myself. So thank you for sharing that. We've got time for a couple more questions. So I want to ask my, I hate to say favorite part of the book, cause I benefited and appreciated all of it, but I loved in particular toward the end, when you began to consider if your story of suffering and loss was, quote, a gift I needed to steward. What does it mean for suffering to be a gift, let alone a gift to steward? Well, it's funny because I, that idea came to me in, um, in the weirdest way, Christine. So I was at a conference and somebody says to me, um, what's the greatest gift? 
that you've ever been given, you know, besides salvation and people, they really wanted tangible gifts. Like people were like, wow, somebody gave me a trip. And I said suffering. And honestly, I thought that, and they were all like, whoa, that's so deep. And I'm thinking, I don't even know what I meant by that. Like I, I didn't have a meaning for that. So everybody was thinking I was deep. And I was like, I have no idea what, what that meant. So I really took that to God. Like, wait, wait, why did I answer that? Like, why is this a, a gift? And it was one of those things that God sort of just opened my eyes. Like, this is how you met me. This is, you know, I met Jesus and through reading John 9, sort of who said in this manner for his parents that he was born blind. I'm like, God, why did you bring this suffering into my life? And I would say the deepest experiences I've had with the Lord have come through suffering because I have nothing to hold on to. And so I really, I turned to God in a different way. And so I think God has called me to steward suffering, which, you know, was one of the first questions you asked me is why do you write about suffering and loss? And I think it's because this is something precious um, to me because God has met me. And so I think we steward gifts that God has given us that we feel that in some ways, like time is a gift that God gives us, but also God gives unique gifts to the church. Some people have the gift of teaching and preaching and different gifts. And weirdly, I, I think suffering could be in that list because there is something incredible that God does in us too. I feel like I'm a way more empathetic, compassionate person because of suffering because I'm, well, I still am pretty self-centered. And so, but suffering helps you realize like, wow, I remember how hard things were that you want to help other people. So I think that's another way that God helps us steward suffering because he helps us, um, we steward our experiences because we use them for the glory of God. Thank you for stewarding your story of suffering. It means a lot to so many, I know, and uh, hopefully more and more people will read your writing and be encouraged as they walk through layered losses. But at this point in our conversation, I want to invite you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening today who is walking through layered losses. What would you say to this listener to encourage them with the hope and help of Jesus Christ? If you are walking through layered loss today, the first thing I'd say is, I'm so sorry. This is hard. So don't hear this conversation and feel like, wow, I've just got to cheer up and find joy. I, I hope that's not where you land after hearing this, but I hope that you will lean into Jesus and not look away and let him comfort you. Pray that you would trust that even though it feels dark right now, that light is coming and that there is hope that Jesus has never left you. And even if you don't feel his presence, he is as near now as he has ever been. And I would encourage you to open up the scripture, even if it feels like eating cardboard, <laughs> just ask God to meet you and just just cry out to him just as we talked about from Psalm 119, my soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. And then I would say, look around to see how God is answering you. Because God answers our prayers. Trust that he is answering you even as you ask them. And look around for signs of evidence of his love for you. Because that is what has changed me, is seeing how deeply God loves me. 
Thank you so much, Vanitha, for those words of encouragement. I want to let the listener know if you're interested in learning more about Vanitha, the book we talked about today, her other resources, you can scroll down in the show notes, click the link there, and that will take you to a page on IVCD's website where you can access all of that information. And I think real quick, Vanitha, if somebody listening wants to uh, get connected with you and your writing ministry directly, where can they go to find you online? Um, yeah, the easiest way is my website. It's Vanitha.com. So it's pretty easy to remember. And um, yeah, I have contact me buttons and my books and all of that stuff and all my writing. Man, you got a you got a URL address with just your first name. That's pretty special. Yeah, my <laughs> children say it's so narcissistic though. So there's that. Like, Who wants their name on their website? Sometimes when we look for really short URLs, they're like thousands of dollars or something crazy to have to get. So good for you for getting that. Well, awesome. Thank you again so much for joining us for the show today. I know I was encouraged. I hope the listeners were as well. And I look forward to seeing how you continue to steward your story for the glory of God and the benefit of his people. So thank you so much again for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Christine. This was wonderful. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.